there, I've, I've throughout Hebrews been making the case of the, uh, the death of Christ is part of the movement of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension that accomplishes atonement. Uh, in this section, two arguments come, come together. If, if you buy what I'm saying, I think two things, you have to believe two things. <laughs> and that is that he's, we, we talked last week about the idea that uh, the copy is not exactly, in other words, not that the heavenly is a copy, but that it is more of, the word is more of a foreshadowing. That it is the uh, tabernacle of the earth is a foreshadowing of the reality that comes in Christ. This comes together with the argument that what is being talked about is not simply focused on the death of Christ, but upon what happens subsequent to the death of Christ, the resurrection. That is, the two things go together. And also, if if I'm the two thing, in other words, if you're thinking of a copy, and you're thinking of primarily a vertical thing, uh, then you may the focus may be primarily on the death of Christ. So let me let me see if I can make the case here. First of all, the, that he does focus in this chapter in talking about a testament or will, he clearly has death in mind in the realm of wills or testaments that death is the key. And so the writer's point here is that a will does not go into effect until the one who made it dies. And so he's going to, he's talking analogously about, you know, the, the, the first covenant then came to its conclusion with the death of Christ. And so animals were slaughtered when the covenant was inaugurated, so in the same way at Jesus' death. But after making the point in chapter 9, he moves out of the realm of wills and testaments and back into the realm of uh, the biblical covenants and the sacrifice of atonement. And he uses the language of blood manipulation, you know, where blood is sprinkled, he says in 922, where blood is poured out in 9. Uh, 921, 922, uh, 922, he talks about curing forgiveness, and then 23, purification. And so in the, you know, the Old Testament use of the blood, actually it wasn't just the slaughter of the animals, it was the manipulation of the blood put on the elements. And the point that I've made about the sacrifice, and particularly the sacrifice of the atonement, is that it's a, de- a life dedicated to God. He says as much here about Christ that it, uh, you know, he's going to make that distinction that it's actually uh, Christ Himself who secures this atonement. Uh, so, but there's a clear overlap with death in nine eighteen because he links it uh, with the, the the clearly he's talking there about the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. Uh, and he says, because Jesus' blood life goes into the heavenly holy of holies, it gets offered to God. But the idea, again, is that Jesus' death can be seen as part of a larger... He does talk about the death of Christ as a sacrificial act, but it's a sacrificial death uh, that is then the inauguration of a series of events. It's not that the death per se... Uh, 
is the point at which atonement is attained. The point at which atonement is attained is when the blood is presented in the heavenly holy of holies. My point being that I think he's talking about the resurrected, ascended Christ. And so, you know, the difference between a slaughter and a sacrifice, you could kill an animal, but it doesn't mean anything. But what you're doing with the blood is then the presentation of that blood in a symbolic way as a life dedicated to God. So we've talked about that Paul does the same thing with the death of Christ. He can talk about it in synecdical terms, synecdical meaning that the death is, you know, a part of referring to the whole process. But the death of Jesus should be understood as the primary event that puts into sequence uh, or puts into motion the events that, you know, the, that culminate in Jesus' offering at the right hand of God. So I'm reading this in a, actually in a non-spiritualized sense. In other words, what we often do is we read the death of Christ as spiritually the offering, but I'm just saying, no, actually he's, what he's picturing is the passage into heaven uh, that occurs with the resurrection and ascension. So he says, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest. First of all, the picture here of a time, you know, here we are at the correct, he, we, we let, read last week the re- Reformation time, the correction time. At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. So he's using sacrificial language. But my point is that we, our tendency is going to be to misread this as focused simply on the death as acquiring atonement. Continue with the verse, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, in verse 26-28, so Christ, we didn't actually read this, did we? So Christ also have it been offered once to bear the sins of many. So the writers earlier claim that Jesus is no longer subject to death, that he is a priesthood who is, you know, the, the, uh, unlike the other priests who continually have to offer sacrifices and are subject to death, so that the logic of the argument of 926 works on the premise that after Jesus died, he rose with, to power with an indestructible life, he cannot suffer and die multiple times because of the death and resurrection. That is, his, his life is an indestructible life. And so after suffering once, he arose to perfection, a life never again subject to death. And so in this chapter, he's going to talk about the once and for all character of Jesus' offering. What makes it a once and for all character is bound up with Jesus' resurrection. And the logic of repeatable offerings, by way of contrast, is repeatable because it's inextricably linked with death. So the death suffering of Jesus can be seen to be the event that puts into process the result, the the process that results in the atonement. The suffering and death lead to his resurrection, an event that makes it impossible for for him to die again. And so at his resurrection, he crosses over into the existence. You know, we might say the death is the end of one covenant, and he crosses over into the, we 
passed to the the age of the resurrection. He enters into heaven, and we've talked about this language. The idea, don't think spatially, but think in terms of horizontally, that on our behalf he's appeared before God and obtained atonement, and we've entered into this new age. So his death sets the sequence into into motion. His death is important, but it is not his death per se is that that we should focus the atonement on. His appearance before God in heaven brings about. That's when the atonement is affected. And the bridge, the logical bridge in Hebrews is the, the resurrection. So in Hebrews he uses three terms to depict Jesus' offering. His body, his blood, and himself. In this chapter he, he's using you know blood and himself. And so usually we think of death as the unifying concept behind these three descriptors, and then we spiritualize it. We make it vertical. Oh, he died, and in the midst of his death, he's presenting an offering to God. But what I'm arguing is, well, no, actually, I'm reading it in a simpler way, actually in a more literal fashion, that actually it's... uh, We can talk about his heavenly offering as body, blood, and self, because I think what the writer conceives us of Jesus rising bodily from the dead, ascending into heaven, and there presenting himself alive before God. This, all, this may sound technical, but I, in, a, in a sense it's going to make a huge difference as to how we characterize the Christian life. So the unifying point behind these terms is the indestructible resurrection life, that he possessed, he came to possess after the resurrection. Uh, And what he brings into God's presence is human life, an indestructible human life, no longer subject to death. And so in in chapter 9, he's doing what the high priests do annually. You know, the earthly high priest, this is 924, the earthly high priest in some sense enters into God's presence you know, symbolically at least, but Jesus entered into in the fullest sense into God's presence in the holy, heavenly holy of holies, and so He sits down at the right hand of God, um, and so there in heaven He presents His offering before God. I'm just saying sequentially, temporally, uh, He's affected atonement subsequent to His death, but His death, you know, His life, death, su- suffering, death sets it into emotion. I think it's the same image that we've already covered in 1.3. So when he claims that Jesus was not a priest, let alone a high priest, he goes on to stress that uh, what Jesus did is made an atoning offering before God in the heavenly tabernacle. Uh, And so Jesus was qualified. We've talked about this. What qualified him to be a high priest? Uh, I think his uh, it, it's his uh, indestructible life. Um, so Hebrews sacrifice. If you were going to do uh, what is called uh, substitutionary atonement, you would do it from this chapter in Hebrews. Uh, and what I'm arguing, well, no, I think precisely in this chapter, 
uh, in the what is called fundamentalism, the fundamentalist movement. There are five points in the, the original fundamentalists. They had, you know, Christ's deity is one of the fundamentals, the virgin birth. And then the third was a substitutionary theory of atonement that requires blood sacrifice. And then the bodily resurrection and then Christ's second coming and biblical inerrancy. And what, you know, what the fundamentalists, what the fun, these fundamentals were set forth was to bring peace to a kind of divided Christian, uh, Protestant Christendom. But um, I think when it comes to the f- claim about substitutionary theory of atonement and the need, you know, the blood sacrifice is pictured as assuaging God's wrath, uh, they appeal, in other words, this is, they're going to appeal to Hebrews 9. They're going to relate it to Anselm's penal substitutionary theory of atonement. Um, and now I've been reading Steve Long actually who uh, is a Methodist theologian he says actually this is even a misreading of Anselm and I think in parts it is so Hebrews states that Christ's blood more so than the blood of sacrificed animals you know 914 will purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God so, what we've been saying is, yes, the blood is the purifying agent, but it is symbolic. Uh, you know, he says in verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without. Why is blood, what is the significance of the blood, and how do we know this significance? Well, the writer of Hebrews is actually reversing the way we often do this argument. We don't understand the significance of the uh, you know, what Jesus did on the basis of the tabernacle, we understand the significance of the tabernacle and the temple on the basis of what Jesus did. He says, He's saying, here's the reality, and this is a foreshadowing of the reality. So, if, if my argument is successful or if it fails about penal substitutionary atonement, it's this chapter and these verses that it will either, either you know, this is where I think is key. Penal substitutionary atonement includes three elements. First of all, it's penal. That is, that it's primarily concerned with punishment. Second, it's substitutionary in that Christ is the sub- substitute who takes our place and suffers the punishment we deserve. Third, it is God who both wills the sacrifice of the Son and accepts the sacrifice on our behalf. And so Hebrews, I think, would seem to teach the first, that is, that Christ's death redeems from the transgressions under the first covenant. Um, There is, uh, but the idea here is not that a death, you know, in the saying that a death redeems does not mean that it is the death itself or per se that redeems. Steve Long says that even Anselm recognizes this, that he recognized death is the indirect effect of his directly willed obedience. Death itself does not redeem. What redeems is Christ's obedience. And so for Hebrews, Jesus assumes the penalty for our transgressions although it does not explicitly state 
the specific punishment that Christ endured should have been ours. Nonetheless, it implies that the you know Hebrews talks about transgressors earning judgment, and we, we've seen in chapter six that he talks about an impending judgment. And clearly, Christ redeems us from that deserved penalty. So we could talk about even the idea of he he rescues us in that sense, but not in the not in the sense that penal substitution pictures it as focused specifically on death. The second aspect of the fundamentalist teaching, here I'm using fundamentalists in the literal meaning of the, they, they called themselves the fundamentalists. Uh, and it, it uh, I think this does not find support in Hebrews. It explicitly states that Christ's suffering on the cross should have been ours. It does not actually teach that Christ substitutes, I think it does not teach that he substitutes for us in that sense. Christ, you can talk about Christ as a substitute, but what is he a substitute for in this chapter? He's a substitute for the Levitical priesthood and its sacrificial system. Christ does offer himself as a sacrifice to God on our behalf, but he does so in order to bring an end to sacrifice. And then the third one, does it teach the third element of penal substitution? That is, God is God the primary agent who demands that Christ suffers and dies and the recipient of the sacrifice? It, it, does God will the death of an innocent person in order to redeem us and then find that death acceptable, as you would usually find in the five fundamentals? And I think this is the most controversial of the penal substitution. That it's, I, I think it's morally questionable. It, it, uh, it, it is, you know, many see it as a kind of return to paganism in its picture in which a vengeful deity must be assuaged by human blood and, and innocent blood. For Hebrews, Jesus' suffering and death are not first and foremost some offering to God but it's his participation in our enslavement to death. You know, this was 2.14. He shares our humanity to the point of death, but he does so in such a way that he overcomes death. He defeats death. And so it's his faithfulness that overcomes. It's his obedience that overcomes fear and death that makes him high priest of a new covenant and then also allows for his own self-offering, you know, uh, to God, that he is the, the, the one who continually makes, mediates on our behalf. And he makes this offering in the heavenly tabernacle. So the offering is not just his suffering, not just his death, not to exclude those, but his faithfulness that overcomes death by taking it upon himself and thereby destroying the power of the devil. Who, for Hebrews, is the one who you know has the he controls us through slavery to the fear of death, and this is called the power of death. And so it's Jesus' completed work that he offers to God, but he offers it not for God, but he offers it on our behalf, not on behalf of God. I think that's the a key difference. So Jesus' death in Hebrews 
yes, it's connected to sacrificial language. Here in this chapter, it's connected to sacrificial language. In 13, it's connected to sacrificial language. But I think that we've misconstrued the nature of this language. It's not necessary to assume that death per se, the death of Christ on the cross, is identified with redemption. Jesus' death, we could say, did result in redemption being obtained because without his death, none of the other events follow. There is no resurrection. He's not qualified to be a high priest, and he's not elevated to the heavenly throne. And so there would be no ascension, no presentation of his blood in the heavenly holy of holies. So Jesus could make not make any atoning offering if he had not died, and the same thing is true in, you know, on the day of atonement. Uh, without the slaughter of the bull and the goat, there is no offering. But just the slaughter of the bull and the goat did not attain atonement. Uh, so... The slaughter is not itself sufficient. It's not the center. Uh, It can stand in for the process. So if this larger understanding of how sacrifice works is at play, I think he's using, he's sliding in, he's talking in one part about the sacrificial process, and then he's talking about the death of Christ as the initiating event, and then uh, he's, but he's not con- conflating Jesus' death and the atonement is the argument I'm making. So it is not that blood in biblical and re- you know sometimes it does refer to uh, uh, a synonym for death. And even in this chapter, when he's talking about a will, you know clearly he's focused on death. But rituals such as the atonement. The blood represented life dedicated to God. And so in the case of the will, he's shifting. He's, he's referencing, okay, here we've shifted covenants, and now in this covenant, then he'll shift to talking about uh, the mechanics of the process uh, referencing back to the offering of the high priest. So I am not, and the writer is not denying the importance of Jesus' death, but I think he's clarifying where that event fits in a larger process. Uh, he locates Jesus' death at the front end. And so, in conclusion, we can say Hebrews uses, we've talked about the term deification or theosis, that is the process of, you know, we, we, he became man that we might become, you know, God, that we might participate in deity. Uh, and I think he's doing both. He's talking about deification in an Eastern sense. I think it's a New Testament sense. And he's also talking about atonement uh, in that Christ is both priest and victim who heals through his self-offering. It takes the incarnation, the crucifixion, both seriously. But it understands they're all, they're all interconnected. All right, that's the introduction to this section. Any questions on that? Too much, Chris? Alec, do you have any questions? Me? Yeah, I just wanted you to ask one. No, this just makes sense. Like, yeah. 
I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I wasn't fully understanding how you were getting a lot of the stuff you were getting throughout the entire book until now. But the whole resurrection is kind of in there, and it's helpful. So, yeah, let's go. Cool. All right. <laughs> what question did you want Alec to ask? That he <laughs> I just like his questions usually. Yeah. <laughs> I've only asked like three questions, so I guess one of them was okay. Well, actually, Alec, you asked a question, and and Frank was listening to the tape, the podcast, or the tape of it, and he said, "What?" He, I think he thought I blew the answer, and you had asked this wonderful question. Oh, you didn't give me... I, is it the kingdom one? I can't remember, but I, I've told... This one, you didn't give me any answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Frank said, oh, I had the answer. So, well, you did? Yes, yes. He, I told you you and Frank need to talk. Yeah, yeah. You guys did the same research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of verse 15, my translation says, these die as a, a ransom to set them free mm-hmm. from the sins committed under the first covenant. How are you reading that? The, here is the language of, it is the language of redemption. And the language of redemption is that if you understand that redemption is the ransom price, you know, from slavery. So you can still use all this language. But, of course, it's a real-world slavery, not simply a slavery to the law. In other words, there would be two ways of reading this verse. One way would say, oh, well, what this means is that you're enslaved to the law and that in some way that law exists in the mind of God and all that. But the other way to read it is, no, this is a, that you're enslaved to sin and death. That is, the mar, it's marked by the law. And this, is, this fits with what the writer said in chapter 2. And he's re- redeemed us, he's ransomed us, uh, that he in fact has, in some way, paid the necessary price. You can use all that language, but who did he pay the price to? In penal substitution, you'd say, oh, he paid God off. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that he redeemed us, paid the ransom, and brought us out of slavery. And I think it's taking the metaphor of redemption too far. You know, even to say that he paid it to Satan is taking it too far. Because it's not, you know, this is sort of what C.S. Lewis does in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's not that Satan demands a payment and God meets the payment. So I think it's a it, the language of ransom and redemption is a fitting metaphor, but like any metaphor, I don't think we're to push it too far and ask, well, who got the, the ransom price? Well, in a sense, the, you know, it's the dynamic of sin and death that he's redeemed us from, and if we recognize the way that he's done it, that it's it's Satan that's enslaved us. It, in a sense, it's our own deception that he's re- redeemed us from. So I, I, you know, I, I, the language even of substitution is there 
But what is meant by substitution is not penal substitutionary atonement. Did you buy all that? Hmm? Did you believe all that? I, I agree with you. I'm just trying to... Okay. All right, well, let's let's try again. Chris, you want to start again with verse 11? But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greatest and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of the creation, he entered once for all in... Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. We're all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and cows. But, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, it's, it's like it's like the sentence. <laughs> but by means of his own blood, and thus securing the an eternal redemption. There you go. I was. I in my version. I keep thinking you. Okay. So, uh, the, he says that the good things that are already here, in other words, throughout Hebrews, there's this spatial language, but there's also the, the uh, language of time. And so, the, this age has arrived, this, this eschatological time that is, has arrived. And that, I think, is the significance. It is not spatially, you know, it's not just that it's spatially removed from the created order, but by placing it in heaven, he's saying this is a first order reality that has been made available to us. In other words, if we think of it strictly vertically, we're going to spiritualize this. What I'm saying, no, let's not spiritualize it. Let's temporalize it. Let's, let's see it as a horizontal event. So he entered then, you read verse 12, by means, he entered the most holy place once for all. This is a final event. Again, it's referring, yes, to, uh, I think, literally, when did he go enter into heaven? I think at his resurrection and ascension. But that doesn't mean he left us. It means it's the inauguration of the final age. And then, Caitlin, you want to read 13? Yes. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Keep going. Yeah. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So again, the, the high priest, he sprinkled, you know, he it's saying what he did, but that's it's not saying that Christ did that. It's saying that Christ offered himself. How did he offer himself? Well, again, I think it is his living, indestructible life offered to God in you know in the at the right hand of God and so it is by the blood of Christ but it, again it's this understanding that it's not simply spilt blood 
but it's life dedicated to God. It's Christ's life and indestructible life that qualifies him as high priest and thus as the one who is the unblemished. What is he unblemished by? Well, he's made perfect because he's unblemished by sin and death. Uh, and that's what it says. He can, And so he can cleanse our conscience from sin and death, from, from acts that lead to death. What we've, what we've missed out on is the integration of sin and death that is there in the New Testament. It's very much there in, the, in, each, in an Eastern Orthodox understanding. They always connect, they understand that sin is an orientation to death. And I think it's, that's a, a, a correct reading of the New Testament. What you miss out in, in uh, penal substitution, and the, as we often do it, is that sin is in some way, the, the two things are, are some, sometimes removed from one another. And then the conclusion is that we may serve. That is, the whole point of this is a, that we become priests. He's going to emphasize this later, that we're all high priests, or that we're all priests, rather, in the order of Christ, who is our high priest. So, question. What does it mean specifically that our, uh, the phrase that says that he cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death? Um, what, what is that? Uh, this is a wonderful question, and I think this is, to 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 my mind, this is the picture of what sin is. That sin is always death dealing, and the way that it's death dealing, I think I would appeal to what Paul says in Romans seven when he describes the split in human conscience. That there is the, you know, I know what in my mind and yet I'm unable I, I do what I don't want to do so I don't think he's simply describing guilt in other words oh we, he, you've got a guilty conscience I think it's bigger than that he's describing actual uh, the death dealing works I think he's describing evil as we take it up into ourselves, and as we then begin to deal in death. I think that the language of guilt uh, is in some... In other words, if we read this, again, in the typical Western or Protestant understanding, we tend to see that our problem, you know, oh, what did Paul discover on the road to Damascus that wasn't there in the law? He discovered he had a guilty conscience. No, that's not what Paul discovered on the road to Damascus. He discovered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And uh, that he understood his problem was not simply a partial problem. Oh, I've got a guilty conscience. His problem was holistic. It was a problem with everything about himself. So I think that this idea here is it, is it we should read it in a kind of holistic manner that 
our our consciences lead to acts that lead to death and this system is itself constitutive of human evil what does jesus save you from evil i mean you could sum up sin and death what's the human problem that we're guilty no the human problem is that we're that we're evil and we need salvation from that violence and death dealing evil so then he changes me he changes us in the sense that there is also that while there is a deliverance from the guilt because it doesn't sound like you you said there wasn't there is a deliverance from something wider that changes the way we act and we think um and Jesus brings that about by his sacrifice and resurrection. Yeah, yeah, cool. that's a good way to put it. Sweet. Yeah, again, I'm not excluding the idea of guilt. What I what I would add to it as as you know, I think you could describe guilt though as a partial problem. And I think the language, though the language of shame doesn't appear here, it does appear elsewhere. And I think that captures the more holistic sense. That our problem is really shame. And shame means you're subject to death. When you say the word guilt, it doesn't it doesn't quite capture that you're existing as kind of the living dead. Shame, I think, gets that. All right. Uh, Alec, you want to read verse 15? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sin committed under the first covenant. So we've been, truly, this is the exodus. Here is the departure from the problem. What was our problem? Was the problem the law? Was the problem the first covenant? No, the problem was sin and death that was spelled out by the law. So here I think it, this is a very Pauline understanding in Hebrews uh, that we've actually, you know, even the Jews who had entered into the promised land did not receive an eternal inheritance. But now we've actually been delivered from slavery and entered into the true promise. Okay. Uh, Giselle, you want to read verse 16? For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Go ahead and read, finish the sentence there. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And here he is using the language. Okay, we've shifted. We've shifted from the Old Testament. You know, the, the we've shifted covenants. And he's using an illustration here of a will, that when somebody makes a will, it comes into effect at death. When did the covenant shift? Now I, I'm saying all this and I don't I hope we don't take this in the way that Alexander Campbell took it and many people in Christian churches take it and say, Oh, well then that means the gospels are old covenant and the epistles and the rest of the New Testament is new covenant. No, I think that the the transition is in the you know the life, suffering, death, 
that we're in the midst of the transition. And so when, you know, especially in the Gospel of John, we, you know, when you go from in the John, John the Baptist says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The significance of that is the teachings of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, I think they're for Christians. They're aimed at the church. They're aimed at us. He's establishing the church. We're in the midst of this, the new covenant. But other than that, we can see then that we, but clearly there's been a change in covenants. And then, Jamie, you want to read verse uh, 18? Go ahead and read eighteen nineteen. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And then go ahead, uh, Dave, you want to finish there the thought in twenty twenty one? Saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. And then faith concluded with In fact the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And so how do we understand how forgiveness is achieved? We understand how forgiveness is achieved through Christ, and now we can look back at those sacrifices and understand their meaning. I think that's the argument that these are the foreshadowing of the reality. Now we've entered into the reality. Um, so that forgiveness, you know, were the Old Testament sacrifices efficacious? Well, inasmuch as they pointed forward to their effectiveness in Christ, they then, in fact, but we have now obtained that forgiveness, and we can look back. The point here is, I think that we need to be careful about reading, I think we do need to read the Old Covenant and the New Covenant together, but in what I would argue is you know uh, using Christ as the the hermeneutic lens of understanding that is to say that we understand now what those things meant the mystery of what the Jews the Jewish you know Levitical system was a mystery to the Jews but Paul says the mystery has now been revealed In other words they didn't necessarily apprehend how this brought about forgiveness. But I think we can now. Alright, any other comments, questions on this section? The last verse, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. I feel like that's like what everyone... It's hard to like... I feel like that's the verses quoted all the time. It's like to justify and to understand everything. If you were going to do penal substitution, this is the place to do it. Yeah, it's like, it's like, oh, if you didn't understand all that. Now we know. (laughs) Jesus had to die. And 
I don't know. You know what I mean? Then you just fill in all the rest of the blanks with, like, with everything you're saying. But, why I'm still, like, what does that mean? You mean the verse here? Yeah. That, that I think that it is, uh, that he's talking about the necessity of the death of Christ. I think he really he is describing that, yeah. and so he is focused here. Uh, that what does the blood of Christ accomplish for us? So he is talking about that. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but what I've been saying is, yes, he's talking about that. He's emphasizing the necessity of the death of Christ, but not in isolation from what he's described before. And also then, he's saying, you know, in, especially in a, <coughs> a Levitical system, which apparently may still be going on, the temple may still be happening, uh, the, the sacrifices in the temple, uh, that this has, you know, did they, uh, did they acquire purified conscience? What is purity? Purity is anything that's, you know, Christ is pure. He's the un, the, the spotless lamb because he's, he's unblemished by sin and death. Uh, what the blood sacrifices symbolize, you know, this, is, this was, if you remember back, I did the whole thing with the original meaning of the atonement. What is brought before God in the various elements of the manipulation of the blood was not to represent death. In fact, death was pictured as a a kind of impurity. But what is represented then is life dedicated to God. So I think the writer is saying, I think the argument is saying, why Christ and why his death? But I think at the same time, he's also saying, and here's the meaning of what we've been doing all along. Yeah, yeah I think that makes sense. Just the emphasis again of like blood representing life is what it has to be. So, can I ask another? Mm-hmm. So, specifically and solely related to the Levitical system, what does it mean for something to be cleansed? Um, to, you know, the, the idea of being made holy, so the, the idea, I think, was that it was to be made pure from, you know, if you go through the various things, you cannot have been in contact with the dead body. You can't cannot have been in contact with an emission of blood. You can't. You just start going through all of the Levitical laws. I think all of those things can be summed up there, all representative of death. And so, what it meant to be made pure was to cleanse yourself of any representation or anything that was connected with death. And that then made the priest symbolically holy, but of course set aside and of course then they would have to uh, and so I think it is a, a uh, what purity and uh, 
achieved then was we now recognize that we've been cleansed as the temple pointed to of death. Sin and death being interconnected. And also the Old Testament was continually cleansed, yearly. I mean, and later on in the chapters, and now it's just once for all. We don't have to be, it's not a continuous thing like it was in the Old Testament. Yeah, and and, and the re- again the reason is because he's his life is an indestructible life. Mm-hmm. He's defeated death. It's not that he died and that was what he accomplished. No, that in his death he defeated sin and death. He overcame it. He freed us. Which gives a very different I mean this this gives a very different character to um, I mean, even you know, even in the five fundamentals, I was I was dis, there. The, it, it is the ideal of penal substitutionary atonement. It is the that as it's worked out in. The, but the the end re- result is. I think that focus like we have here that now we can serve the living God. Now we've been given an alternative resurrection life and resurrection ethic. Uh, And the warning is to enter in today to do this thing now because the eschatological age has has arrived. And as Paul and elsewhere will say, God is no longer overlooking the time of ignorance because the... True. Yeah, this is the.